G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for dangerous ideas. What's going on with universities? Are they just hotbeds of crazy, woke, uh, vulnerable students wailing about their feelings and how vulnerable they are and being pandered to by bureaucrats and administrators? Is it necessary for the swinging arm of right-wing justice in the form of Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida to slap around those institutions and whack them back into shape? Get all the wokies off campus. Uh, This is an important issue. How we're educating young people and the ways in which the ideas that they're educated in then bleed into the rest of society. Uh, Amna Khalid is fascinating. She was brought to my attention uh, by Alan Davison, who is uh, the wonderful dean uh, of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney, uh, which is uh, responsible for this collaboration. Uh, every once in a while, eight to 12 episodes uh, over the course of 12 to 18 months, we do a collaboration with UTS. I'm a visiting uh, fellow there, and this is called Permission to Think, these subsets which really try to get our hands dirty, understanding some of the things that motivate the best in higher education and the best in free speech on campus and try to run a countervailing force against what can sometimes be orthodoxies and dogmas on campus. Um, Amna is fascinating because she is a professor herself. Uh, she is a historian herself. Uh, She lives and works in Minnesota, but she was born in Pakistan. So she has, in addition to her expertise in South Asian history and the history of medicine and so on, she has a deep understanding of and interest in the global history of free expression in all of its forms. She's lived under military dictatorships. She's lived in places where free free speech was not available. She studied history at Oxford University. She knows her stuff. She now has a blog called Banished and a podcast called Banished, which deals with censorship in the past and in the present. And she recently put together an amicus brief or an amicus brief, different people in different countries (laughs) say say it differently, Uh, basically a submission to the courts in opposition to what the governor of Florida is trying to do to higher education in that state. And if you don't know much about that, he's a right-wing guy who has bought this idea that universities are hotbeds of crazy, woke young people who are worried about having their feelings hurt and who are only being indoctrinated with ideas about America's past, which say that white people are guilty for everything and everything is white supremacist and uh, you know, they should have to pay reparations to victims of slavery or whatever it might be and genocide and so on. And he's gone, we're going to come in and we're going to redress this uh, by requiring educational institutions not to teach that kind of nonsense and to to teach a, a, a nice, sunnier vision of what really happened in America's past, which was full of rivers of milk and honey and whatever. Anyway, Ordinarily, many of the people who are against these kinds of reforms can be a little bit wokey and hysterical and black armband view of history themselves. The great thing about Amna is she's not. She is an equal opportunity offender, an equal opportunity critic. She has no truck with uh, cancel culture. She believes it's a real problem. She has no, she thinks there's no place for this kind of uh, censoriousness on the left. And at the same time, she's putting her money where her mouth is and saying that politicians, bureaucrats, and even voters should not have any say over the way that we 
run academic institutions. Um, it's a fascinating chat. I hope you enjoy uh, as much as I did this conversation as part of Permission to Think in co- collaboration with the University of Technology, Sydney, with the one and only Amna Khalid. start with cancel culture because I thought you wrote an interesting piece on your Substack uh, debunking some of the myths about the myths from people who deny that cancel culture exists. Right. Um, I think there are a number of myths and what I, to begin with, I wrote that piece with my colleague Jeff Snyder and one of the kind of motivations for it was when we brought to people's attention or we started a conversation about cancel culture, people would either say it doesn't exist at all or the alternative was it's worse on the other side. And I think that is, you know, how we decided to write that piece because the fact of the matter is it does exist. People use... um, I mean, I can go through it in more detail if you want, but people use examples like, well, so-and-so has a big platform. They continue, Dave Chappelle is continuing to uh, have his comedy uh, shows being watched and he has not been canceled, therefore. But the question really is that what do, what do these cancellations, these high-level cancellations do for those who are not as popular and who are not in the limelight? And what we found is that remarkably, you know, well, it shouldn't be remarkable, but um, that notably there are many, many people who are being silenced. So it's not about one particular celebrity or one particular idea, but it, what the cancellation of that does to the wider environment for having a conversation. Mm. And um, I would argue cancel culture is incredibly strong in the U.S. right now. It's very much um, on the upswing. Sometimes I'm feeling more hopeful and I think we've reached a tipping point. Um, But I haven't really seen many reasons to to confirm that uh, hope of mine yet. Um, And I do think that the right, I don't want to say is only responding to the left in terms of what's happening in Florida. I think there have been tendencies on the right to censor for a long time. But I do think I I can understand that some of it is being fed by this cancel culture, which is on the left. Yes, yes. I mean, cancel culture on the, I mean, this is what's so peculiar, I think, about the current moment is that I, I assume that the right has always been responsible for cancel culture. I mean, McCarthyism was cancel yes. culture. The religious right censoring things they found offensive was cancel culture. Monty Python being pulled off the airwaves and having huge controversies for the life of Brian was right-wing cancel culture. Like, we just assume that conservatives are more conservative about what people can say and have tended to be more punitive about people who try to break out of the boundaries of what polite society dictates. What's interesting about the current moment is that you do seem to see that tendency towards Puritanism, a certain kind of Puritanism on the left. And I certainly think that is then feeding into, it's pouring fuel on the fire of whatever that instinct is on the right. Um, You call, let's go through those myths. You've just thought of the first one, which you call the Chappelle myth, the Dave Chappelle myth. Uh, In other words, you know, if if Dave Chappelle is still alive, you know, if Louis C.K. is still selling out Madison Square Garden, then where is this cancel culture that you speak of? I've sometimes called this myth the, well, they still have hands uh, myth. We haven't chopped their hands off. I mean, so they're still, you know, so the only way that you could successfully pull off cancel culture in this worldview is if you beheaded Louis C.K., then he wouldn't be able to do his uh, Madison Square Garden um, show. But if he still has a face and he still has hands, then yes, apparently cancel culture doesn't exist at all. Well, the thing is, it's not even about Louis C.K. The question is, 
how many things have become taboo now for comedians uh, who are doing stand-up who are not Louis C.K.? I'm not really that interested in Louis C.K. and David Chappelle. They have a platform. They will almost always have hands, right? Even if you behead them, they'll have hands. But the question is, what is it doing to the general culture of comedy, if we're talking about comedy? What is it doing to the ability of people to kind of ask or broach topics which are, uh, you know, a little off-color or a little on the edge? And with Without having that ease to explore areas, whether it's in comedy, whether it's in thought more broadly, it really, we, we are talking about a reigning censoriousness. And that, I think, is what we need to be paying attention to. Yes. Um, and that this is a point that I make often, which is that it's the, it's the, it's the evolution of a way of speaking with each other that requires much more treading on eggshells and much more inauthenticity actually and much more hyper cautiousness which impedes the the flourishing exchange of ideas because everybody has the examples of the the high profile people who were cancelled to as as cautionary tales but another point that you make about this is that mm-hmm. When you when you point to these high profile people who were quote unquote cancelled but who were doing fine, J.K. Rowling or whatever it might be, there are there's a survivor's bias here. You make the point because we're only selecting from the group of people who did end up being okay. There's a whole bunch of people who are less high profile who were cancelled who are not okay. <laughs> we can't point to. You mentioned someone who I've never even heard of, which is some bloke called Daniel Elder, who was a composer in Nashville. Yes. Can you just tell what yes. happened to him? So Daniel Elder had um, was a composer, very promising composer, and I, I'm trying to remember. There's so many controversies. Honestly, I can't remember which one he spoke out. Uh, he, it was it was George Floyd. Into. It was the protests. Um, there were protesters who tried to burn down the courthouse in Nashville, right? And they were white protesters he critiqued the kind of violence that was happening. And he was saying he supports Black Lives Matter, but he doesn't quite get, does it have to be this violent? And does this kind of lawlessness, is it justified? And it was that, and it led to a complete cancellation of him. And he had like very promising contracts upcoming that were canceled. And now no one's heard of him. This is someone who was going to be someone, but because of the kind of outcry that happened, Daniel Elder is no longer um, composing. And mm. in fact, I, I think a while ago, I asked him if he would come on to my podcast. And at that point, he was so jaded that he didn't even want to come on to the show because he didn't want to make more of a mess in the process and um, be further kind of dragged into this controversy. So he's someone, like you said, you haven't heard of. Mm. I think it was only 11 words that he put on Instagram. He said, enjoy burning it all down, you well-intentioned blind people. I'm done. And with that, a career becomes incinerated. It doesn't take much. I mean, as someone as someone who has, uh, has had his own uh, share of experiences uh, being pilloried for things that I've put on social media, it's, extra- it's extraordinary how, uh, yeah, how swift and, and, uh, and misrepresentative it can be. Uh, the other point that you make about cancel culture, what's that? And I said how damning it is and how kind of, you know, conclusive that cancellation is. There's no kind of Mm. going back from it. There's no, there's not into context. And there's no explaining, uh, on social media either. The, you know, the more you explain, the more you, I don't know if you've heard the, the story of this, uh, of David Vlodskov, who is a, uh, a journo who was, he's a journalist who 
got a job on the Seattle Times editorial board and moved his whole family from Georgia to uh, to, um, Seattle to take up this job. And after his first article for the op-ed page, he wrote that, (sighs) foolishly, that Lenin was worse than Hitler on social media because he'd written a piece about a Lenin statue that they have in uh, in Seattle. Or maybe it was Portland. I think it was Seattle. And uh, he tried to explain what he was talking about on Twitter to the haters and, of course, ended up getting fired and now he has no job and now the first three pages of Google results are all about how he defends Hitler because he was defending Hitler supposedly against people who were maligning Hitler. I mean, he's a, he, you know, he's a Jew. He's not pro Hitler. He's trying to make a nuanced point on social media, like an idiot. I, I had him on this podcast. Well, I was I mean, like, Social media doesn't lend itself to nuance firstly. Right. And, and that's, unfortunately that's, that's kind of being reflected in our public discourse now is that there is no room for nuance because most people are beginning to talk on uh, social media platforms with each other. But what the, the other thing is, it is, um, the ways in which things are being interpreted is very binary. It's like, oh, you're saying, oh, if you're saying Lenin is worse than Hitler, then you must be a supporter of Hitler. The absolute, the conclusion that is drawn from that is is so misplaced and there's so little, it's very binary. There's no room for kind of adding any other context or, you know, seeing mm. why someone might be saying something. Mm. So the conclusions that people jump to, I feel, are um, are predetermined. And they're scripted. You're so right. And it is spilling out of social media. I mean, I had a moment on this podcast recently where I was talking to a, a ferocious critic of Israel um, and he was talking about ethnic cleansing. And at one point I said, I made the point that there are worse and better forms of ethnic cleansing in that if you were going to, <laughs> it's a hard point to make, but you could either irradiate people and kill them all or you could say you have to leave this area within 72 hours and we're taking your homes. Yeah. I mean, I'd probably just say there are more brutal ways of doing it and less brutal ways. Maybe, maybe, maybe you fell into the better trap by right. <laughs> maybe. There are better ways of doing it. And I think maybe. people hear that a particular way. There's no, also no room for kind of making a mistake or misusing a word. You just kind of epitome right. for what you said. Right. So the, so um, the other point that is worth making on the con- cancel culture is this argument that it's not actually cancel culture, it's just criticism. That what, what people who shout about cancel culture want is a world free of consequences. When in actual fact, all cancel culture, all cancel culture is, is you say something that is no longer acceptable, that we've communally decided is no longer acceptable, and you face the consequences, just as you always have. What's wrong with that claim? There's a lot wrong with that claim um, that you just that it's a matter of I mean, it's not a matter of consequences. It's a matter of silencing and silencing someone isn't a consequence. That is censorship. It's really that simple in my mind. So it's not consequences. It's not something that has been. um, There is only one consequence is the point, right, in this case. And the the consequence is that you are erased, that your voice is erased. And that in itself is not a consequence. That is silencing. It's censorship. Right. Um, But isn't that, I mean, can't the same, if you put it into other examples, you know, if someone were to say, to stick on the Israel theme, that Jews are inferior and should be rounded up and herded into gas chambers, wouldn't it be an appropriate thing to just silence that person like to be like okay you don't get to have a twitter account you don't get to give a speech at our 
college. Okay, there's several problems with that, right? One is once you silence one point of view, who makes the decision about who is getting silenced? There is a judgment call that's being made over there. So today, if you're on the left and you decide a particular view is unacceptable, in a different context, at a different time, another view will become unacceptable. Let's go to the Florida case um, where we have the Stop Woke Act. And in fact, the judge in the initial proceedings asked uh, the state lawyer if this meant that when Democrats are in power, they can decide, decide which ideas are divisive concepts and decide that those need to be censored out of the classroom. And the response of the lawyer was yes, right? So that really highlights how this kind of idea of silencing works, which is if it's the approved orthodoxy today, that's going to reign, but that can shift. Who makes that decision is a crucial point when we get to deciding what views are absolutely not worth hearing. What views are, are there views that are absolutely not worth hearing? Not my mind, but I'm saying if that's the logic you take, right? right? Like if you say, but I mean, are you are you are you that much of a free speech absolutist that uh, you know uh, a neo-Nazi claiming that we should incinerate all Jews is uh, is right to cry foul? It depends if he's on whether speech is being made. If it's being yeah, if it's being made in a public square, I am that much of a free speech absolutist that I think that they should be allowed to make that claim. Um, I think the, the entire rationale behind the neo-Nazi march in Skokie, as justified by the ACLU, uh, as as worth defending, was exactly this: that in a public space, oh, sorry. we're going to wait. Go I'm not talking. I'm not talking about passing laws against that speech. I'm talking about, you know, going back to the Dave Chappelle or Louis C.K. example. That person being booted off uh, media platforms, being having their television shows withdrawn, being cancelled in the in the colloquial cultural sense. In other words, they're sort of memory hold by by culture, but we're not putting them in jail for saying that. You know, I'm not going to, I mean, I think it really depends on the society you're in, in the context you're in. And of course, social communities have the right um, and they have dynamics which ostracize people. So I'm not saying that they can, or, or like, I'm not making a judgment on what a private institution should do. I'm not making a judgment on what a particular society should do. But legally, I do think that we, in order to have the freest possible society where we can have a conversation about everything and anything, I, I don't think that someone like that should be banned out of the public's square or I don't think that it is a I don't think it's a very health, healthy speech culture if we're going to begin to silence views even if they are the most reprehensible views so in my mind an open society would have space for even those ideas that I think are absolutely utterly you know disgusting but I would want them to be there because I worry about what would happen once you start banning things and this is one of the things that I think is currently a problem in the kind of conversation we're having in the US I don't think people have a living memory of what it feels like or what how it pans out when you begin to silence particular points of view what they don't appreciate because they haven't lived it is that it goes downhill very quickly you know you I can go to Orwell, I can make several other references right now. But something might seem like a good idea. I don't, I'm not endorsing those views by allowing them to be, to be broadcasted. But at the same time, I feel that censoring them is actually more dangerous and um, comes to bite us in more kind of significant ways than allowing them. Does that make sense? It does make sense, but I do feel like there's still a dodge somewhere in there, which I want to tease out, which I think has to do with... Yeah, yeah, push me. I want to be... Well, I think it, I think let's set aside the legal questions, right? And let's, let's agree that we don't, that we think that, that we're against hate speech laws. Uh, we don't think that governments should be sure. in the business of dictating what people sure. say. Mm -hmm. 
I don't think we're going to get to the nub of what's ro- wrong about the current moment of hostility towards free speech without granting that there are some circumstances in which the vast majority of people would be okay with private organs like social media companies, websites, publications, uh, you know, movie studios, television networks, uh, even academic institutions from excluding people from their from having their platform, their platforms or their megaphones. So for me, there needs to be some differentiation between why are we okay with a virulent neo-Nazi being booted off those platforms, but we're not okay with what's going on at the moment on the left and the right. And for me, maybe the solution is less about the content of what people are saying, but the mechanism by which we make the adjudication about silencing them i mean to me the the unseemliness of the current moment is that people seem to be making these adjudications about what can and can't be said in a knee-jerk reaction to mobs to social media frenzies to political to political expediency to pandering sure what's the alternative you're proposing like in which case do you think it would be okay to uh, in terms of the mechanism, right? So ma- I mean, so ma- yes. Well, I don't, something- I don't know, but I could imagine a mechanism whereby um, you know CEOs and deans are uh, have are less aren't such pussies, uh, pardon the French, and they have a mechanism by which they are committed to ideals of free speech first and foremost, a set of principles that they have to abide by were they to throw those free speech principles overboard that would have to show some kind of real harm, not just them responding to a petition that got cobbled together by a bunch of students in a frenzy or, you know, being shouted down in a a hall or something like that. See, I'm very Um, very sceptical of things like harm in in part because not because I deny that things can be harmful. I actually believe words can be extremely harmful, but it's again about the adjudication of who decides what's harmful. Let me be clear just to just to kind of clarify the conversation further so we can move productively is I think any any private organization, if it decides and chooses to uh, ban certain kinds of speech on its platform is a is a perfectly viable decision that they can make. I'm not, you know, so I'm not saying that Twitter has to be totally free for everyone. That is not my place and my position to call. Let me bring bring us back to the academic context, which is where I think some of these things are playing out. I actually don't think that there is any view that is off the table in um, the academy or should be off the table. However, and here's the distinction, I don't think there's any view that that's unutterable, but I think it's about whether it's being endorsed in a particular way. So let's say we're in a geography classroom and your geography professor walks in and starts teaching that the earth is flat as the truth. There is no room for that. That is actually what we would call educational malpractice, right? That is, t- that is teaching or giving a con- concept weight, which it doesn't deserve. However, if you're in a geography classroom and a professor is like, well, you know, there are people, there is a theory or there are people who believe this, which has been debunked, but students still want to get a sense of how is it that someone in this day and age can be a flat earther. And this person says, you know what, there's someone I know, I'll call them to class, you can have a conversation. That to my mind is an educational moment where you can actually delve into how is it that in light of this evidence, people are still believing that the earth is flat. Or you can put this in, you know, it's anti-vaxxers, or you can put it in any kind. So no idea in the academy to my mind is unutterable, nothing should be taboo. Yet endorsement or teaching it as the truth is something that requires 
um, expertise and something that goes. So it's not just uttering it is an in itself should not be uh, um, uh, sanctionable uh, unless it is being endorsed as the truth. So in, Got it. in that case, there are limits on speech. But no matter what these limits are, don't we fall back into the trap of what you were just saying to me, which is who decides the limits? Yeah, and we're falling back in the context of academia onto the um, decision that is made by a contingent of experts in a particular area, right? So it's, to my mind, that's a very different, a peer-reviewed kind of opinion being aired is very different from something that's off the cuff that I've just decided to share with people. Um, So those are not, those are not just views that are just views off the cuff, but those are, those are ideas that have been substantiated that have the kind of weight of scholarly expertise behind them. And yes, this is not to say that every question is settled in any area. You will see that there are disagreements and there are kind of heterodox ideas and those should be allowed to be aired, provided they are based on some kind of evidence and some kind of um, consensus within the community, at least a certain section of the community, that brings to it, you know, um, the heft that is required to have an academic debate and discussion. So in order to have an academic debate, you can't just get up and you can't say the Holocaust never happened. That is not a viable point of view among historians. However, you can get up and have a conversation about... You know, there are other things that are hotly debated and 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 viably debated mm. uh, among historians, which is, you know, what is the impact of X in Y? I mean, I'm, I'm struggling to come up with an example right well, now. Well, I mean, I, 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 one example might be that you could certainly have a conversation about the historiography of Holocaust denial. I mean, you could certainly talk yes. about the, you know, you talk about the idea that the Holocaust didn't happen. You just have to have that as a meta conversation yes. rather than using that claim as a as as a fact. So yeah, let's talk. I don't want to run out of time before we before we get stuck into the right wing uh, here because sometimes I can be mistaken by casual listeners who aren't paying attention as someone who's agitated about left wing cancel culture or something. And and I'm really not. I just feel that I'm part of the left, and so I am interested in interrogating the phenomenon of what's happening to progressives. Actually, gonna. I'm going to respond to that and say, I, I hear what you're saying in terms of how you're, you're uh, charged with that. I get that a lot as well. And I actually believe that as someone who's on the left, I have every right to critique the left. And I have actually more of a right to critique it and to reform it because I'm committed to those uh, ideals. It bothers me more when it's happening on the left, because like you said, on the right, we're used to censoriousness being a tactic and a mode of operation, whereas on the left, and it's depressing for me coming to the US and seeing this happening um, and being kind of this kind of cancellation on the left, um, precisely because I've always looked to the left as the liberators, as the ones mm. who would argue for more freedom. And it's it's troubling. It's not surprising, I guess, given historically we've seen this happen before, but it is surprising in the US context, which is, you know, positioned itself as the bastion of freedom um, and, and also positioned itself um, in many ways as... Uh, against communism. Um, so kind of carving out that space, which which calls for freedom um, in mm. ways that, that are distinct and different. Yeah. And not only do I want a refuge in a, a viable left, but I'm also terrified of the far right and, uh, and what it can do to Western civilization. And to all of us, uh, my grandparents are Holocaust survivors. I'm in a same-sex marriage. There are all kinds of reasons why I would not fare well, uh, you know, if we were to provoke the far right into 
um, the kinds of extremes that it has seen historically. So let's let's just talk about this phenomenon because and you again, if people haven't already noticed, I mean, you would be the kind of person who people might expect to be superficially in favour of getting wokeness out of universities. You write about cancel culture. You've written about the futility of trigger warnings. You don't have much time for uh, current uh, social justice fads. And yet you're a ferocious critic of what DeSantis is doing in Florida. What is DeSantis doing in Florida? (laughs) Uh, he's doing what Orban uh, has successfully done elsewhere. Um, he's basically trying to limit the scope of what is thinkable and what is... Um, he's trying to constrain the parameters of academic inquiry. And it's the, the, the tragedy is that it's, it's tragic at all levels, I would argue, K through 12 as well. But in terms of higher education, what's interesting is that um, he's violating academic freedom, which arguably is not an, a, a constitutional um, right in the U.S., but it is the one thing that has made the U.S. Academy the envy of the world because it has allowed for people to speak truth to power. It has allowed for people to ask and interrogate um, uh opinions or views that are unfashionable, uh, yet have been extremely um, uh, kind of field defining once they've been given the space to be interrogated and explored. So what DeSantis is doing is he's trying to limit the freedom to think in public institutions across the entire state. And, and for people who aren't up on the news of this, what what specifically, so there's a there's an act called the okay. Stop Woke Act, right? And you have, and you're you're putting your money where your mouth is. Yes. You've actually written an amicus brief or an amicus brief, depending on how one pronounces it, for to this to the courts in opposition to this. What does the act specifically do? Yes. So the Stop Woke Act is basically saying that there are eight concepts which are considered divisive concepts by the state, which they are forbidding to be taught in classrooms. And the crux of it is, it's those concepts which make uh, white people feel any kind of guilt or. Um, uh, responsibility for the actions of their ancestors. In the grand scheme of things, if you don't know the context, it it's not a bad idea to say we don't want to be teaching students how to uh, teaching students that they need to feel b- guilty for things that they've not done. Nobody's going to argue with that. But in the context of the U.S. and how U.S. history is taught, what it's basically saying is that we don't want people to teach. Um, about the kind of uh, atrocities that were committed during the time of slavery. And it's a way of kind of saying those are not ideas that we want for to be discussed in the classroom or to be explored in the classroom. So those are ideas that are being constrained. So inquiry is being constrained. So the Stop Woke Act is basically saying that those would be considered uh, illegal to talk about those things. Now, when you think, and the, the, the interesting thing about it is, it's not just saying that these are ideas that you can't endorse. That would be one thing. It's saying you can't even advance these ideas in the classroom. I don't know how you can teach any kind of history without referring to primary sources which are advancing these ideas. I cannot offer you a critique of something without presenting to you whatever that thing is. But according to this law, you would be running afoul of state legislation if you even advance documents or expose students to ideas that you then want to critique, which which um, the state deems as uh, inappropriate. So that would make the teaching of history 
Um, and frankly, teaching a lot of other stuff, uh, primarily in the humanities and social sciences, but not exclusive to those, uh, fundamentally impossible. So if you can't, this is not an educational enterprise, then this is indoctrination. So <laughs> the irony is that they're saying that we're indoctrinating students in our classrooms. And it's precisely to counter that indoctrination that they need to put into place laws that will ban certain ideas from being discussed, whereas actually, in effect, what is happening is they are the ones who are proposing a form of indoctrination, which um, would be in play at public institutions if this law is actually passed and um, the courts kind of find in favor of it. Now, this to me sounds flagrantly in opposition to the spirit of the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States guaranteeing people the right to speak to say whatever they it want is. is the re- is the reason why that doesn't apply because there are public funds in play and so the the state would withhold funds or something well that's that's the idea that the rhetoric that's being used by the right is that this is something um, if the public doesn't want this to be taught it ought not to be taught public funds should not be going towards it that's I've written again on that with my colleague Jeff Snyder that that's a misuse of the idea and the word public and how that's being used because that's often the one that's being invoked. Um, but your question was something else. Hang on, I got just pause on that thought for a moment because I liked that I did read that piece and I thought it was interesting. The difference between public as yeah, the two two ways in which we use the term public. Right. Look, you know, it's it's um, there are many ways in which we use the term public, but there's something that could be public in that the public is financing it. Something could be public in that it is for the public good, right? It doesn't mean that the public gets to decide exactly how, what each element of it is going to be. And the kind of analogy that we came up with, which I think is very effective, is that, you know, we pay funds, we have municipal taxes uh, for road maintenance, um, that's fine. We pay experts to decide which kind of tar they're going to use to fill holes. But we don't have a say in what that tar is going to be or what that kind of mechanism is going to be to fix the roads. Similarly, when we're dealing with academia, academia or education, public education is a public good in that it is for the public. It is um, easily and accessible, um, you know, at a low cost, whatever, depending on which country you're in, available to the public. But it's not public in that the public gets to decide what's taught. That's not how this works, especially in higher education. In in the kind of K through 12 system in the U.S., it is a little bit different. States have more control over the curriculum. And um, one can argue that that's, that shouldn't be done there either. And I, I would argue that it shouldn't be done there either. But the setup is very different uh, than from higher Ed, which is where our amicus brief is um, what it's focusing mm. on, which is the kind of constraint of ideas. And the analogy, so, just to interrupt there, Emma, the analogy that I thought of, which you didn't raise, but which is an apt one for people outside of the United States in places like Australia and Canada and the UK, is public broadcasting. It, yeah. the, I work for the public broadcaster. The public broadcaster, yeah. right, is funded by public funds for the benefit of the public and explicitly must have no interference from the democ- institutions of democracy. The whole point is that it is free from from voters and free for from influence. politicians. That's what it's there to do. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So what I'm finding, and it's really interesting how the right is using this idea of the public, and they're like, well, the public pays for it. Why should the public be paying for ideas that uh, that they find divisive? Well, that's not how this is this has ever been done. And if that's called um, authoritarianism, um, it's called democratic authoritarianism, if you will, but it's not, it's not democratic and it's not in the spirit of a public good. Um, the ways in which, the way in which it's intended to be um, or was intended to be. So that's the explanation of the public, but there was a bigger question you were asking that I, I 
Um, yeah, well, I think it just had to. Uh, the, my next question, and I don't know if I didn't get to it yet, was that it strikes me that there are two um, criticisms that I hear of what's going on in Florida. One is um, that this mm-hmm. is going to make the teaching of history impossible. And another is, even if it were the case that these reforms are going to enhance the teaching of history as a useful pushback against the insanity of woke professors, using the, to- using the organs of the state would not be a legitimate way to achieve that. And you would need cultural and educational remedies instead. Yes, Absolutely. The state needs to stay out of this. The state has no business interfering in a classroom and dictating the curriculum, whether that enhances or hinders the educational uh, process. That is not the business of the state. They really should not be in that business. So what do we say to the Chris Rufo's? Yeah. Well, what one says to the Chris, Rufo, Chris Rufos of the world is, is a difficult question because the Chris Rufos of the world are politically motivated. There's nothing you can, they're not uh, amenable to logic and argument. So I, I don't speak to the Chris Rufos of the world, but what I will say to those who are not is that, you know, I'm not denying that there is a problem in public education in the U.S. today. So let's just let that's why I'm such a fierce critic of the left and what's happening on college campuses. I'm strongly in support of um, the need to do something, but the need and this has to be an internal reform. This cannot be state dictated. That never goes down well. I come from a country where we ruined our public education precisely when politicians started interfering and political influence started determining how and what could be taught. So the the state's role in this case and the public's role, I don't think is in interfering in the curriculum. However, and this is where I think the state could play a role in the reform of these things, is they could say, we are in strong support of academic freedom and we will be supporting that. So that would be already a way to kind of signal that any overreaches of the left that kind of hinder academic freedom would not be tolerated. But the other thing is, I think the state can say we want X percentage of our budget to be devoted to faculty instruction and not to administrators. So instead of banning DEI programs, which is what DeSantis is doing, that's ideologically driven, right? Say X percentage goes to administration, the rest goes to faculty instruction instead of handpicking those programs or those administrators that you don't like. I'm no fan of DEI programs, yet at the same time, I can't get behind DeSantis, his approach of uh, banning them. So I think the public can, they can say that our tax dollars are being, we are giving them for education, but not determining the tenor of the education, right? So therefore, we want more of it towards actual instruction and not most of it going towards administration. That's a very different proposition from the kind of proposition that DeSantis is making. But that's not the kind of proposition that gets you votes. So that's not one we're likely to hear mm. coming from um, any side, to be honest. Since you mentioned a DEI, you've written about this as well, and you sometimes call it DEI Inc. Uh, when I use the term diversity, equity, and inclusion in Australia, I'm sometimes misunderstood as talking about actual diversity and actual equality and actual inclusion. <laughs> what, what do you mean? What is DEI Inc.? 
DEI Inc. is the reigning set of policies and practices um, on college campuses, but beyond college campuses, even in corporate in the corporate world in the US, which is, um, you know, the equivalent of saying we're going to do lip service to something, but not actually do something meaningful. Um, so we're going to posture. There's a lot of emphasis on performing your commitment to these as opposed to doing something uh, meaningful or even being willing to question whether your policies are perhaps not going to be effective. So there's no room for questioning. It's very dogmatic. And it is this idea that um, if, you, if, you, if you critique those policies, then you're not in favor of diversity, equity, and inclusion, like you were saying, as concepts. So DEI Inc. manifests itself in very many different ways on college campuses. One of them are these diversity trainings, which are extremely doctrinaire, where there is a right answer. So they're fundamentally not educational, but they are uh, intended to uh, dictate what you say. Uh, the second thing is, so these trainings, which are anti-racism training and diversity trainings, then there are things like, you know, it's a whole package. It's like bias response teams. It's uh, protecting minorities and the students uh, who might be vulnerable by instituting trigger warnings. It's a whole package that is predicated on the idea that what is happening on colleges can be deeply harmful to students. So it's this framework of harm and it's harm mitigation, which is what they're trying to do. And anything that they perceive as being harmful must be mediated through this set or must be refracted through this set of what is considered um, safe, creating a safe space on campus. So that's a brief kind of overview of DEI Inc. Mm. Um, but it is extremely doctrinaire. Yeah. The, yes, I mean, what's amazing is also just going back to your conversation about the amount that universities are spending on administration versus faculty and teaching that so many colleges in the United States lately have introduced new positions uh, that make $250,000, $300,000 a year who are just diversity officers who sort of impose this quasi-Stalinist framework over everything, adjudicating whether or not you're thinking correctly about such matters and whether there are any dissenters in the institutions who need to be corrected in their worldview. Just wrap us up with, with, with the fate of tertiary education, higher education as Americans call it, because one of the cruxes of your critiques is that universities are basically corporations that masquerade as educational institutions at this point. What, is, what do you mean by that? I think a lot of universities have become highly corporatized, even in the public sector. You know, they're driven by the logic of um, corporate development, where administrative thinking has overtaken the kind of thinking that faculty are in the business of doing. So we're in the business of problematizing something, looking at it from different angles, looking at the complexity of it, you know, sitting with a problem and thinking about it deeply. Whereas I think the logic that is now uh, reigning on most college campuses is this, here's a problem, we need to solve it, right? There's a paper on my table and I need to push it out of the way. So the administrative logic, which I understand, and I think it has a place, but that should not be the dominant logic um, or the dominant kind of thinking um, in institutions of higher education. So the fact, I mean, I don't think I need to say much more, but to say that you can see that on university campuses right now, there is renewed zeal for proliferation of DEI offices, let's say, or other administrative offices. There's never any question of whether we should have them. Every institution has suddenly decided that that's the thing to do and we need to have them. And like you said, we're talking about six-figure salaries that are being paid to these people. Meanwhile, there's never any 
really concerted conversation about, hang on, why do we keep cutting faculty lines? Are we not an institution of higher education that needs to be prioritizing learning and teaching? That's not a conversation that's being had. Why is it that 75% of the professoriate in the United States is adjunct and contingent faculty? That's a really damning statistic when you think about the bulk of the population is being educated by people who do not have the kind of job security that is necessary to teach courage. That's the bottom line, because once you do not have job security, the whole point of tenure is that you can speak truth to power, right? That you can you can bring to the fore heterodox ideas, which will challenge the status quo. But when you think that 75% of the professoriate is contingent faculty, and they don't have that job security, not to mention that they're working multiple jobs just to make ends meet because it's so poorly paid. Well, then what does that say about the state of tertiary education in the United States? I think it's really dire. And I think it's, um, I don't feel particularly hopeful about the future of it if these trends continue. I think there are two problems. Faculty co-governance has been strongly undermined and administrative administration has become much, much heavier. Um, and hence their logic is the one that dominates. And the second thing I think is that tenure itself is being questioned in so many places, and that's to the detriment of the culture of intellectual development in the United States. And lastly, when you say you're not very optimistic about the future of higher education in the United States, how optimistic are you about the broader phenomena that are roiling culture, education, and politics? If you fast forward in to, to 20 years' time, are we in a better or worse place? That's up to us. <laughs> I, I really do think if we let the trends carry on as they are, I think we're in a worse place. Um, the only place where I do have hope is I think it's still I think it's still something we can do something about. It's not a gone case. Um, and I think we need we need faculty to speak up a lot more um, and take uh, control back in higher education. Um, and I think we need students who's learning who are really the at the end of the day, they're the ones who lose that the most and have the most to lose. So we need them to be more politically involved and engaged to reclaim their, their learning and not let legislators from any political stripe dictate what they're going to be taught. Anna, great to talk to you. Thank you for your time. Thanks so much, Josh.